0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with one of the authors of The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South, written by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington, who joins us today. Tucker, thank you so much for coming on our show.
1: Oh, good morning, and it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me.
0: So this is a grabber of a title. It sounds like a twisted fairy tale. Could you tell our audience a little bit of the background of The Cadaver King and The Country Dentist.
1: Sure. It is, in fact, (laughs) accurately a little bit of a twisted fairy tale. Um, Background-wise, I came to Mississippi, to Oxford, to the University of Mississippi, which is where my office and clinic, law clinic, is at the law school in the summer of 2007 to open the office. There wasn't an office here. There wasn't a clinic here. And at about the same time, my co-author, Radley Balco, who was then writing for Reason Magazine, was in Mississippi researching and writing a story that involved um, a SWAT team raid, police SWAT team raid, that went off the rails, and uh, a deputy ended up getting shot. The SWAT team had gone into the wrong duplex, and long story short, Radley... Uh, while he was at the trial, started noticing what he thought were some other sort of odd phenomenon. And so he, somehow or another, had heard that there was an innocence project starting up. And um, he called me at the office. And I sometimes joke that it was the first call I got. (laughs) And so I I grabbed it. Um, And we started talking then about a couple of issues you know, little did we know that these were going to morph into several other issues and that it would be essentially a decade long process um, from both of our perspectives. Radley as a journalist and me as a lawyer sort of working sometimes together, you know, we would uh, I would talk to him about cases and sometimes apart. But in the end, um, we sort of came back together and decided that after a decade that we really ought to try to create a complete you know, uh, record of what had happened and solutions going forward and so forth. So that's essentially the background for, for how the book got started.
0: And the main topic for this book broadly is the use of forensic evidence and the gathering of forensic evidence in the state of Mississippi. Who are The Cadaver King and The Country Dentist?
1: Well, The Cadaver King is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Stephen Hayne, who's a forensic pathologist. He, for a decade and a half, essentially performed autopsies, and then for a significant portion of that decade and a half, was, was really the only person performing autopsies in the state of Mississippi. I think he was performing 80 or 85 percent annually.
0: And at a tremendous rate. What is about the average number of autopsies a doctor would be performing in a year and how many was he?
1: Well, it's a good question and I think the answer depends. But generally speaking, I would say a forensic pathologist would do around 250, 300 autopsies a year and I think in those circumstances with significant administrative help and help in the morgue where he or she was doing the autopsies. And there's a National Association of Medical Examiners, which is sort of the governing body for forensic pathologists. Their standard is that anybody doing above 350, I think the number is, annually is likely going to make significant errors. Dr. Hain, um, for multiple years in Mississippi, was doing anywhere from 1,000 all the way up to 1,800, 2,000 autopsies per year by his own admission. So doing far, far, far more autopsies than is recommended by any governing body.
0: And The Country Dentist is someone who we actually at the ABA Journal had been reporting on. A former reporter of ours, Mark Hansen, did some amazing work throughout his career with us on Flawed Forensics. And he reported about Dr. Michael West. Can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Michael West?
1: Sure. And, you know, I don't know Mark, but but I, if I'm not mistaken, I think maybe the first sort of national article I read about Dr. West, because I couldn't quite believe that this was going on, was Mark's um, article, I think from the 90s, called Out of the Blue, if I'm not mistaken. But Dr. W- Michael West was a clinical dentist, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is in South Mississippi. And he had been prior to that in the Air Force, and when he was in the Air Force, he was a forensic dentist, and he typically in that role, he identified, helped identify remains of airmen killed in plane crashes mainly through identifying dentition for people that had, you know, been in a crash or been burned, and you know, we I think we're all familiar with Uh, identifying or matching remains from dental um, records. At some point in the late 1980s, early 1990s, he began to get into the field, the discipline of forensic odontology, but specifically the discipline of matching uh, bite marks to Individual dentitions, so a bite mark on skin typically, but sometimes in other mediums. Um, and he fashioned himself as uh, really sort of on the vanguard of what was then a relatively new discipline. And there is a is a governing body, the American Board of Forensic Odontologists, and there were odontologists around the country at that time that were doing what he was doing. They were working in the same discipline. But as your journal reported all those many years ago, um, Michael West was sort of a species unto himself. He was sort of, by his own admission, by his own claims, preternaturally gifted in his ability to both observe, document, photograph, and then match alleged bite marks to uh, a specific individual in his phrase, which was indeed and without doubt.
0: And for our listeners who may have read a little bit about how bite marks and bite mark evidence is now being questioned, they may remember a story of a supposed bite mark expert who matched teeth marks in a bologna sandwich that had been frozen for months to someone and used that evidence. That is this dentist. Can you talk a little bit about that case? Because it involves both these men.
1: It does. That was a case in a sort of notorious here in Mississippi that where there have been several capital murder prosecutions that featured the same prosecutor and Dr. West. That particular case name is Calvin Banks, an elderly woman was found murdered in her house in, um, if I'm not mistaken, Lowndes County, Mississippi. And there was uh, a witness who had seen the defendant or claimed to have seen the defendant in or nearby the house on the porch somewhere around the time that they suspected this woman might have been killed. And there was a connection, as I recall, Mr. Banks had at one point either rented a room, I think, at the house or stored some of his belongings there. At any rate, Dr. West was called in, I think, by local law enforcement. And one of the pieces of evidence at the crime scene was a partially eaten bologna sandwich. And Dr. West claimed to have taken that bologna sandwich and matched the bite mark that had been taken out of it to the dentition of Mr. Banks. At trial, the defense attorneys objected to any number of things, including the admission of Dr. West's finding and testimony, uh, in large part because they themselves had never been able to see the baloney sandwich. According to Dr. West, he had tried to preserve it, but the sandwich had started to smell bad or gone bad or shriveled up, and so he just tossed it And actually, like several other of his cases over the years, what essentially was being asked was that you just trust Dr. West and his observations without any ability to, you know, refer those findings to an expert or to view them through photographs or something like that. Mr. Banks was convicted of murder. The Mississippi Supreme Court actually ended up reversing his murder conviction based on broadly speaking, a discovery violation because the evidence had not been preserved. Mr. Banks, as it turns out, was tried again without that evidence and and convicted. But it is a sort of infamous case, both in Mississippi and I take it from your question, um, elsewhere as the bologna sandwich case.
0: Now, you raise throughout the book what seemed to me as a reader to be numerous red flags about both these men and how credible we should think all of their findings and their testimony in so many cases was. However, prosecutors, cops, judges, courts, all seemed to embrace these two men. Could you talk a little bit about the system in Mississippi and how it led to the embrace of these two men who we now have to wonder how accurate their determinations were.
1: Well, that's a great question that has a complicated answer, so at least from me. Um, And so I'll try to be as succinct as I can about it. I I suppose I would start by saying, you know, as a reader, I, I suspect one will read about some of these cases and think, how in the world could anyone have Believed um, or, or fallen for some of this incredible testimony that these gentlemen seem to be offering, and there's a bunch of answers for that. But one is, I think, that we try to talk about in the book is is contextual. I mean, you have to go back into the the era. So we're talking um, 1990s, and you know, this was the era of what popular Press was was sort of of the crack era, the era of the super predator. It was the Central Park rape case. You know, it was President Clinton signing into law EDPA, the Anti-Effective Death Penalty Act, just after the Oklahoma City bombing. The governor of Mississippi at the time was vowing to make Mississippi the capital of capital punishment. They wanted to limit death penalty appeals to a year. So. I think contextually, readers need to be reminded that this is when this was happening and i think I think that 's important for two reasons, not only because I think it adds to the understanding of at least partly of of how these guys could have gotten a foothold in the way they did, but I think Radley and I also wanted to set it out as a warning, as it were, which is you know, that era in the context of that era comes and goes. There's no reason why, you know, fear of crime uh, won't come up again. I think the Trump administration has has started down that road. Or there could be some other era or context that comes up, that becomes popularized, whether it's accurate or not, that makes it easier, for lack of a better word, for, for a forensic discipline which is unsound or untested, to find easy entrance into American courtrooms with, you know, potentially devastating results. And and that's, I think, what happened here. There are other, um, I don't want to go too, on too long in answering your question, but there are other, I think, things at play in answer to your question. I think there was not a lot of prosecutorial discretion, at the very least, I think that the system, the forensic evaluation system, whether it was pathology work or whether it was um, forensic odontology, had been incentivized in a way here in Mississippi, mainly because it had been privatized. When it really should have been a function of state government, the medical examiner's office, and those incentives led over and caused problems. You know, um, prosecutors wanted to solve crimes. Dr. Hain and Dr. West could do that for you in a lot of cases. These were serious cases, homicides, capital murders. So there were there were a host of things that led to their ability to seemingly walk into most any courtroom, even with the most outlandish forensic claims, you know, completely unbased in sound science, and have them admitted and uh, in most cases have them affirmed on appeal. And you know, then when you get into—I don't want to get too too far in the weeds—but when you get into post-conviction work, which is what I do, it's very, very, very difficult, you know, nigh on impossible, to have a reviewing court at this stage go back and essentially admit that you know a decade and a decade or and a half's worth of, f- of forensic discipline was in fact invalid.
0: I actually would like to get into that post-conviction conundrum because. Now that we have looked back at this evidence that was used to put away so many people and people like Dr. Hain, who the Fifth Circuit referred to as now discredited, you say in the book for so long, even if various counties, the people in them actually had concerns about his work, he was the only game in town. He was the only major provider of autopsy services at that point in time. Now, what should this state of Mississippi do? How can they address this? I know that in other states, like, say, Massachusetts, where there was a huge problem with their evidence um, after one of their examiners was proved to have falsified evidence, they faced some, you know, more than, I believe, more than 10,000 cases had been affected. I think that's right. What should Mississippi do in the light of the only person really involved in doing autopsies for a decade and a half now being seen as discredited?
1: Well, um, one of the things that Radley and I say, I think it's in the, the author's note, and it was one of our, our main motivations for writing the book, is, is we're of the opinion that the state of Mississippi ought to set up an independent objective audit of the cases that these two men were involved in it is an enormous undertaking but in our view it's worth the candle because to the extent that the state refuses to do that then i think you know the credibility of the system as a whole suffers and by the system i mean the criminal justice system and and sort of the concept of of due process and fairness here and you know it goes without saying that Mississippi has not had the best track record of fairness and justice, especially when it comes to people of color and poor folks caught up in the criminal justice system over the years. and we touch on that in I think the fourth chapter of our book. You know, these audits have been done elsewhere. You mentioned uh, not an audit necessarily, but you mentioned um, a review of of the affected cases in Massachusetts. You know the FBI and the DOJ when they realized they had a problem with the discipline of hair microscopy because of a couple of exonerations in Washington, D.C. It wasn't without its fits and starts, but ultimately they teamed up with National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and the Innocence Project in New York to do an audit of what looks as though it's going to be tens of thousands of cases that the FBI was involved in. So it can be done, and our view is um, it ought to be done here one of the reasons this is sort of in response to the beginning of your question, one of the reasons it it needs to be done is because reviewing courts, and in particular I'm thinking of federal courts and the Fifth Circuit here, in my view, and um, you know this is I will admit at the very least a partisan view and a and a view of an advocate for some of my clients, I think the Fifth Circuit and elsewhere often abdicate their responsibility for reviewing cases like these in the name of finality and sort of procedural bars most of which stem from at the which we mentioned earlier but I you know I think I, I just have to say that I think it's incredibly cynical at best and intellectually dishonest maybe not at worst but but getting up there because you know, the Fifth Circuit, for example, as you mentioned, claimed that Dr. Hain was now discredited. But at the same time, and, and Radley actually wrote this section of the book, it's it's towards the end, and it's well written. It's too bad we don't have him on this call. He had an, another obligation because he's better as a layperson, as a non-lawyer, I think, in explaining this than I am because I can get in the weeds. But, but at the same time that the Fifth Circuit is claiming that Dr. Hain, for example, was discredited, and the state was arguing that position in the Fifth Circuit. Down in circuit court in Mississippi, Dr. Hain was still testifying in homicide cases, older homicide cases, on behalf of the state. And so, you know, the state of Mississippi was wanting to have it both ways. They were wanting to prosecute older homicide cases where they needed him to come and talk about the pathology work he did. And in those cases, he didn't seem to be discredited. And yet, when someone was seeking some post-conviction relief for what that person claimed was some egregious, some scientifically sound uh, opinion that uh, Dr. Hayne had rendered. That person had missed the boat, had missed the procedural time bar. And, you know, I suppose we could argue about how close or, or not the Fifth Circuit ought to hew to an interpretation of EDPA. But to the extent that the Fifth Circuit is going to hew the way it has, which is by not getting to the merits of these cases, then I think it's incumbent all the more on the state of Mississippi to take it upon itself to do the hard work of reviewing these cases.
0: You mentioned many cases throughout the book that Hain and West were involved in, but one of the major ones, and a very sad one, involves the separate kidnappings, sexual assaults, and murders of two three-year-old girls who were snatched from their family homes and and murdered. Could you talk a little bit about the two men who ended up going to prison for those murders and then later being exonerated?
1: Sure. They're both terrific people, as is often the case in these innocence, um, wrongful conviction cases. The first case, the gentleman was named Laban Brooks, and he was convicted, as you said, of raping and murdering a three-year-old girl, abducting her in the middle of the night from her bedroom in her house. And then about a year and a half later, a very, very similar offense occurred, and about eight miles as the crow flies from where the first one happened, and law enforcement arrested a gentleman named Kennedy Brewer and charged him with capital murder. Also, Mr. Brooks was sentenced to life. The the jury did not vote to give him the death penalty. Mr. Brewer, fortunately, and I'll explain that in a second, was sentenced to death. Years later, I think about 18 to be exact, a number of lawyers got involved, including specifically two lawyers from the Innocence Project in New York, Peter Neufeld and Vanessa Potkin, who did extraordinary work, particularly Vanessa, for several years, on both cases. And in late 2007, they solved the case. And it turned out that, you know, it's not that shocking that there was a serial pedophile, homicidal pedophile in the county who had abducted and murdered both girls. He lived very close to Mr. Brooks and Mr. Brewer. And the Innocence Project got DNA testing and through that process eliminated Mr. Brewer, identified the real perpetrator who then also confessed to murdering the victim in Mr. Brooks's case. Both those gentlemen, I should add, were convicted in large part on bite mark testimony presented by Dr. West. And in the interview with law enforcement, the real perpetrator said, A, I don't really even know Mr. Brooks or Mr. Brewer, and B, uh, they weren't around." They didn't bite the girls, and I, I didn't bite them either. There there aren't any bite marks. I think I should add, I don't know if you know this or not, but unfortunately, just about a month ago, less than a month ago, Mr. Brooks died of advanced stomach cancer. And, you know, it was a terrific loss because he was, I can't do justice. I don't think over the radio. He was, he was just an extraordinary human being, charismatic, kind, funny, like his friend Kennedy Brewer, not embittered, just a lovely person. And, you know, he lost more than a decade and a half of his life to staying behind bars and got out only to get very, very, very sick. And he passed away just last month. He was a dear friend, and I miss him.
0: I didn't know that. I'm so sorry to hear that. Certainly a little bit of his personality came through the book. So my, my condolences to his to his family and friends. Thank you. What has been the response to the book so far? I believe you have had a book event in Mississippi. We're talking on, on March 1st. You, my listeners, are probably hearing this after March 7th. Um, but what has the response to the book been?
1: Well, the book came out on the 27th, and we had... For your listeners, I'll be I'll be like a little bit of Chamber of Commerce for Oxford, Mississippi. Um, Oxford is a lovely university town, and it has a tremendous independent bookstore here, Square Books, which is an institution. And Square Books has authors come through town multiple times a week, and so they were kind enough to host us for an event and a reading on the night that the book came out. And at the risk of sounding Self-aggrandizing. The event was packed. There was it was standing room only. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, my family came, so there there were I had some you know I had some ringers, but it was a terrific event. This is a great town to have something like that. There's it's just a a town full of readers, and they're interested in everything: fiction, nonfiction, and there are uh, the law schools here, so there were actually a lot of students who are interested in this issue they want to do what I think Radley and I wanted to do. At least one of our goals was to just, you know, publish a full record of what happened in the hopes that we can, you know, move the state a step or two forward. So at least on our first event, to answer your question, it went well. The book hasn't been out that long. So it's hard to know, you know, what the reaction will be down the road. You know, I'm, I'm sure it'll probably, it's a, you had mentioned before we got on the air, it's an upsetting book. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant read. It certainly wasn't a pleasant book to write in that way. But, you know, as I said, not to repeat, but I, I hope that with the record out there, that when people here in particular read it, but also nationally, because it does have some national issues, forensic science in particular, I hope it serves as a, you know, as an illustration of what can happen uh, if we don't pay attention. And if we're not rigorous and we don't do things like adequately fund a public defender service, or we relax the rules for admissibility on forensic disciplines, or we get carried away about crime and punishment. Anyway, so I, I don't know whether we're going to have that kind of reaction or not. I certainly hope so, though, and I hope the book has a positive influence in that way.
0: And, you know, we didn't even touch on this, but for any of my Modern Law Library listeners who pick up The Cadaver King and The Country Dentist, there's a deep discussion of the coroner system, which was new to me, and how that uh, was used and played into lynchings, for example, and and a, a pretty rich history of that. If our readers are interested in finding out more, maybe attending one of your tour dates or reaching out to either you or to Radley Balco, how could they do that? Well, tour
1: date-wise, we have a Facebook page. So if you Google Facebook Cadaver King in the Country Dentist, you can see our upcoming dates. We're going to be in Nashville next week and then Washington, D.C. for several events, an event in New York City in March. I'm easy to find because I'm a faculty member at the University of Mississippi School of Law. So if you look me up, you should find me and feel free to, to email Radley writes for the Washington Post. He has a column called The Watch, and his contact information is on there. And let me say, it's music to my ears that you like the coroner chapter. (laughs) I should say to your listeners, I'm glad you like that chapter. We owe a large debt of gratitude to our editor, because that chapter was about three times as long as <laughs> in the initial draft. I found it fascinating, and so did Radley. And she was nice, and she said, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, and it would be better if it was about a third as long. So I do think it, it adds some context to the book. So thanks for, for saying that. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us. Again, this book is The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South. Thank you so much to Tucker Carrington for joining us and to you, our listeners, for joining us as well.
1: Thank you again for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast listening service.